Fundraisers have to see every encounter with a donor as an opportunity to educate and politicize them. If you can get a donor to respect you Mm -hmm. and to listen to you, you really can have a lot of influence on how they think about this work. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Jeff, the producer and host of the show, and I couldn't be more thrilled to share this next episode with you. I had the immense privilege of sitting down in New York with social justice philanthropy expert Edgar Villanueva to discuss his book, Decolonizing Wealth. For those of you who haven't read it, which you absolutely should, it's a brilliant book that offers hopeful and compelling alternatives to the dynamics of colonization in the philanthropic and social finance sectors. I personally read it cover to cover in about 24 hours, and my book is a giant yellow highlight. I really couldn't put it down. Edgar's resume is incredibly impressive. He has and continues to hold many leadership roles in the space, including his current post as chair of the board of directors of Native Americans in philanthropy. He was also named 2018's most radical philanthropy critic by the Inside Philanthropy Awards. So here you have it, my conversation with the brilliant Edgar Villanueva. Enjoy. First off, Edgar, I want to welcome you to What Donors Want. Thank you so much for being on the show and for hosting me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we usually start our podcast off with something we call the, the cheeky speed round of questions. And it's, it's, a, it's a way to promote the idea that donors, program officers, whomever, that we're all just actually people and that, you know, philanthropy and effective partnerships are about human to human relationships. And, uh, and so we, we started off with a few questions. Okay. So if you will indulge me, I've got eight of them and you can say the first thing that comes to your mind. They're kind of silly. And uh, we'll go from there. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number one. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Uh, to teleport. Me yeah. too. That's such a good one. <laughs> what was the last show that you binged? Oh my gosh. Um, binge watching probably RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing answer. I have also done that myself. And what was the last book that you read? The last book I've read, oh, that I actually finished. Um, I'm working my way through like five of them right now. Yeah. Probably a non's book winner's take all. Oh, I've just yeah. finished that as well. It's, <laughs> it's very, very on brand. That's a great one. Um, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be? Pizza. Yeah. Fair. Um, pizza free. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and what is your favorite genre of music? Black gospel. Love that. Yeah, that it's something great. that usually surprises folks. But, uh, I love I it. Love black gospel. That's music. amazing. And what is your next dream travel destination? Oh my gosh, um, I am very interested in. Uh, there's a couple places at the top of my list. Argentina, for some reason. I mm-hmm. want to go to Buenos Aires. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, and I'm very interested in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Okay, coffee or tea? Coffee. And final question, very important. Brittany or Christina? Christina. <laughs> oh my God, controversial. We've had a lot yeah. of Brittany guests. <laughs> I love it, mixing things up. Thank you so much for indulging us in that. That is the end of the speed round. 
Loved it. So, of course, now part two is a deep dive into your book, Decolonizing Wealth, which absolutely blew me away. I truly couldn't put it down. I've got highlights all over here. Um, so for listeners, our whole office has read it, but for listeners who may not have read it yet, which they should, um, can you give us a brief overview of your central thesis and the reason behind writing this book? Yeah, so I think the book is an insider's point of view of what it's like to actually work inside of these institutions of yeah. wealth and privilege and power. Yeah. And especially from the perspective of a person of color comes from a very different background. Being Native American, coming from a very poor family. Um, and so I share sort of what my experience of feeling like the other mm-hmm. um, has been in life, but also the other within uh, philanthropy. Um, and some, you know, some of the stories are painful um, and, uh, you know, experiences that I had that uh, caused me to be angry and um, ultimately, my journey in the book that I share is, is one of my own healing, mm-hmm. um, and that began with re- deeply reconnecting with my own culture and perspective as a Native American person, um, and offering a different way to view philanthropy through that lens. And so I was prompted to write this book because I, for many years working inside of foundations, I just always thought to myself, you know, nonprofits would not believe that, that what actually goes on in here, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I think people imagine that we're having very yeah. philosophical conversations about poverty and strategy, um, but that's not really what's happening a lot of the time. <laughs> um, and yeah. where the priorities really are off uh, within the field, where there is a focus on like legacy and image and yeah. the optics of like maintaining all of that versus real change in the communities. And so I just, you know, sort of the anger and frustration around that made me feel like I needed to uh, get that out mm-hmm. in some way. Um, and I became just exhausted from the years and years of conversations within the field about change and equity and yeah. justice where I don't see any real change happening, mm-hmm. at least not fast enough. Yeah, absolutely. And what has the response been like so far? Tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, I had um, bouts of anxiety in writing this book yeah. around how it would be received because um, there are a lot of uh, counterculture things that I'm doing with this work. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm naming institutions yeah. and I'm not being... Um, you know, we have a culture of extreme politeness in this field. Mm-hmm. And so to be direct in the way that I am being or provocative yeah. is kind of like counterculture. And so um, I worried if I would ever work again, if I would be blacklisted from the field, if how people would receive it. Um, and uh, I really did not want this to be like a takedown. I, I'm coming from a place of love, um, a place of someone who works inside of these mm-hmm. institutions that really cares and wants to see change. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was very nervous about it, but it's been a tremendous response. Um, the book is already in its third printing, um, you know, 20,000 copies sold. I've been speaking all around the country, soon the world, um, got invites to get outside of the States now. And so I'm really taken aback, like every day, the people who are reaching out and and just sharing how this book has really touched their lives is like amazing. I also love how direct you are in it because it's about accountability and I think naming people and institutions is really powerful in that way. It really stuck out to me. That's wonderful. So in the book you write a lot about your experience as a program officer, particularly your first experience at the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So at the time you were 28, this was your first job in philanthropy and you were tasked with giving away 25 million dollars a year. 
what was that like? Um, crazy. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, we... It, it, it was like I entered another world, yeah. and um, I remember interviewing for the job because at the time I was finishing my graduate degree and was thinking about going into healthcare administration. So yeah. I had been interviewing at healthcare systems and organizations, and going to interview. You know, at, at, at the time the the foundation only had eight staff, and it was uh, the offices were in this uh, very like private. Um, you know, on this beautiful plantation, actually. Um, and so everything from just how the office looked to the people to what I was doing, it was another world mm-hmm. that I was thrown into. And, um, you know, immediately I absorbed lots, um, lots of privilege because of being associated with this organization. And I think, I, I don't know if I tell the story in the book or not, but uh, I remember my first Christmas. That was that was where I really realized something that's really different. Because I used to get uh, you know a handful of holiday cards, but all of a sudden I'm in this foundation and I got like hundreds of holiday cards, oh including goodness. the governor of the state, yes, like a yeah, personal hand sign. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? Like, yeah. why? Well, who am I? And why? Yeah. What is this world? So, yeah. it was it was a very different world. Um, and some of that, of course, I enjoyed having not had power or access before. Um, there are things that were really exciting about that newfound position of power, uh, but I also quickly begin to see that uh, there's another side to that. Yeah, right? absolutely. And you also write a lot about the purpose that you um, you were aiming to find through this job. So about connecting or having access to these resources and to these platforms and using that to leverage those resources into communities that needed the most, and particularly communities of color. Mm-hmm. How did you find that you were able to fulfill that purpose as a program officer? How much control did you really have over where the resources went? So, you know, I had a good good amount of control and, and that varies within foundations, yeah. right? There are foundations where program officers have a portfolio and um, have uh, sort of jurisdiction, so to speak, over um, where those resources go. In other cases, um, you have to sort of make internal uh, cases for... Yeah. For that funding. And I always tell nonprofit um, folks that even when you work inside of philanthropy, uh, you never cease to be a fundraiser, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if the money's not yours, you're yeah. having to sort of justify and make the pitch internally to yeah. fund groups. And so um, so I, I did, you know, working at my first job and even in, in other jobs, um, have been able to influence and leave my fingerprints on sort of the strategy. And uh, there are decision points that we all have in this field every day that um, can uh, move us toward doing the right thing or investing in communities of color, even if we feel like we are working in an institution where the board doesn't get it or the leadership yeah. doesn't get it. Um, there are things that we can do to, um, you know, help remove some of their some of those barriers yeah. to, to get those folks access yeah. who have historically been marginalized. I think it's a really important note for fundraisers as well that you need to equip your fundraiser in the institution, yes. as you said, with the tools to advocate on your behalf and in yes. making sure that they have everything that they need and they're they're able to easily kind of synthesize what you're asking for. Absolutely. Yeah. And so as well, at KBR, you write a lot about how you were working with the leadership to transform their model of philanthropy. So moving away from transactional into a more community-based research approach and, and going out and finding organizations who are doing transformative work instead of waiting for them to come to you and go yes. through, you know, coming to the in-person meeting that they drove. That story about oh, that, that woman driving overnight is just terrible. terrible. It broke my heart. <laughs> and it's so unfortunate that the power dynamics mean that people don't feel comfortable asking for alternatives. But it's amazing that you were able to do that. And 
and and you write about that approach that um, going out into the community finding the work that's actually transforming people's lives and in through the podcast through our clients we're always asked you know that's great but how how do we as movement builders and as nonprofit leaders be found when when the organ you know the the funder is coming out to find us how can we make sure we're on their radar do you have any tips or was there anything that really stuck out to you during that process that you could recommend you know i think it's the funders part of part of the work is on funders right i think if if yeah. you're a good funder you're a good program officer you have to get out of the ivory tower and into the community to um, to sit and listen. So in my case in North Carolina, where funding was not going into some of the poorest counties, um, I would just go into the community and begin to just meet with people. I would We would have town halls. So mm-hmm. we'd say, we're coming to just have a conversation. We want to learn about your community. We want to know what's important to you. Sometimes these were in churches or... Um, different community centers where we would just assemble and have a conversation to build a relationship and get to know folks. And in many places, if you are, if you just get out, it doesn't take long to kind of see who are the spark plugs in this community. Um, and not to confuse a spark plug with a gatekeeper, because that's, that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, um, you have to do the work. And, you know, unfortunately for, for some funders, they're either, I hate to say lazy, but to do the work of equity, it is hard work and you yeah. have to be willing to go yeah. the extra mile. But also, to your earlier point, many foundations are understaffed. And although we have all this money, we don't have enough staff to do that, yeah. to do that extra work. So <laughs> it is helpful for nonprofit partners to find ways to help us uh, do that work faster mm-hmm. or to synthesize information, right? Um, and how you get the attention of a program officer, um, a couple of tips I'll just leave you yeah, right away. Yeah, please. Um, I, I often tell nonprofit folks that, uh, you know, you want to build a relationship with funders. It's all about relationships, of course. And the way that you do that is to engage them in ways that it's actually not about money, which sounds ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we yeah. as funders often want to think that people want our expertise or they want something mm-hmm. else that's not necessarily a check. And so to invite a program officer, um, invite program officers into your community for um, community events, mm-hmm. uh, to speak on panels, to find ways to expose them to your work that does not seem like you're directly just trying to get money out of them yeah. is often a strategy. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it goes back to my favorite fundraising phrase, which is if you want money, ask for advice. If you right. want advice, ask for money absolutely and that is (laughs) it's so true true and it's so succinct but that's a really good point thank you for sharing that and uh, as well you also write a lot about unrestricted funding and how of course that is the ethical thing to do to shift the power of choice into the communities that actually know what they need but how a lot of funders aren't comfortable with that model and they you have this great quote where you say fund seekers are forced to play games dangling projects that they know have sex appeal or reflect the trendy buzzword of the moment in order to entice foundations to fund them and it's so unfortunate but it's so true and of course a lot of that you know the onus of changing that system does have to rest a lot with funders they have to understand why that's problematic but on the other hand or maybe and not but is there something that fundraisers can do as well to incentivize funders to support them in that way or have you seen any strategies work on on their side yeah, you know, I, I, I think fundraisers have to see every encounter with a donor as an opportunity to educate and politicize them, right? And it's wow. my, I, I've got to be so wise about philanthropy, <laughs> um, really, because I, I've been educated by fundraisers and, and nonprofit leaders. 
And if, if you can build a relationship in a way that you can get a donor to respect you mm-hmm. and to listen to you, you really can have a lot of influence on how they think about this work. Um, you know, I, uh, I getting into like my second job, for example, in philanthropy was a foundation that funded advocacy and community organizing and movement building in communities. I didn't know a lot about that subject when I went there. Um, and I, um, you know, jumped into the works again, set and listened and, and really figured out who can I trust to really teach me and help me navigate this terrain. And those are folks that, of course, I funded, um, but also I depended upon them to help, um, you know, they politicized me about how I even think about how, how I was doing my work. I allowed them to hold me accountable or even to push back on me because yeah. of that relationship that we had developed. And so I think, you know, nonprofit folks, fundraisers, can actually um, develop those type of relationships. And you're not going to with everyone. I mean, some funders are just stubborn and hard and elitist. It's just the way it is. But, um, you know, try to um, get in and connect with folks Mm -hmm. on an individual human level in a way that is really about this work. It's not about this transaction and I need this money from you, but we both care about this issue. And let me show you how we are doing it. Maybe a little bit different from how you imagine it needs to be done. And if you have those results that you're able to demonstrate um, in a way, you know, that's maybe outside of the logic model that the foundation is forcing, you might actually uh, influence a funder to think a little bit different about how they need to be investing. Absolutely. I think one of my favorite things about this book is how solutions focused you are and how you call everyone to account in that. And something you speak about is um, how it's important to bring the oppressor into our circle of healing. So and as, as you just mentioned, fundraisers can politicize or call donors into their, uh, into their mission and, and um, into their visions. When is that appropriate? It, obviously, when you were at that specific foundation and you were relying on those folks to provide you with information about the community, there was kind of a more of, a, of an equal footing to begin with because you were getting something from them and vice versa. But in general, when do you think it's appropriate for a fundraiser to politicize a donor or have those conversations with them? And are there instances when it's not appropriate? Yeah, you know, it's tough. It's really tough because of the power imbalance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I am reluctant to charge nonprofits and fundraisers with the, with the burden right. of having to, uh, you know, educate philanthropy. Right. But unfortunately, it kind of is like yeah. it's every, we all share in that responsibility, I think, at yeah. some level. You know, it's a really interesting time right now. I feel like yeah. it's a day of reckoning for philanthropy. Definitely. And I'm hearing stories of nonprofits who are rejecting gifts from donors. Yeah. And so I think that um, in order to really see change and to disrupt this cycle, we all have to uh, really get to a place as a fundraiser, as a nonprofit, like what are our values and our ethics around this? Who will we refuse money from? And that is hard when you so desperately need resources and you have payroll. I understand yeah. that's a reality. Um, but also, um, there's we. I, I think part of that uh, idea of scarcity, that scarcity mm-hmm. mindset, is a yeah. byproduct of colonization. So if we can get to a place of thinking of abundance, and there's plenty of money out there, and we are going to select funding partners who really do align with our values mm-hmm. and refuse to partner with folks that we feel like we're going to get into a relationship that is like abusive in yeah. some ways, right? Um, you have the power to, to make those decisions. And I... Um, I would much rather as a nonprofit leader, and I've ran nonprofits and have been a fundraiser, so I I know the struggle, Um, but I would much rather um, not have the money 
honestly, um, and to wait and find a partner that is going to be supportive and mm-hmm. in a good relationship with me than to be in the other situation. I think there's a lot of anxiety in the space right now about people saying, we agree with the concept of not accepting money that was you know, created through profiting off of the systems that are harming our communities that they're trying to change. But oftentimes then people can say, well, then no money is, you know, we can't accept any money because right. most wealth is created problematically. And Absolutely. it can be overwhelming, but I think just perhaps being thoughtful and reflective and right. having some criteria about where you do call the donor into that Absolutely. circle and where you, where you walk away. Yeah. It's a tricky balance, but I it think is. you write about it brilliantly <laughs> and I cannot recommend enough again that people go and read this book because there's a lot of great solutions in it. I'm going to read a quick quote for people. You say, there is no quick fix for the complexity of colonization. Decolonization is a process with roles for everyone involved, whether you're rich or poor, funder or recipient, victim or perpetrator. It may not feel like we're moving forward at all during certain phases of healing. Patience and grit are required. I love that. <laughs> so you've spoken a lot about the, the role of fundraisers in, in kind of politicizing their donors or have, coming to the table as an equal partner and, and letting them know their perspective. But is there anything else that for our listeners who mostly fall into the camp of recipient in that mm-hmm. quote that you think that they should be doing or being aware of or conversations that they should be having in order to, to help decolonize the system? You know, I think I, I think folks should know that this conversation is happening in the philanthropy world. Absolutely. Um, and if folks in philanthropy are not talking about racial equity and power and how we, uh, you know, internally and externally and, and how we do how we're doing our work, then yeah. they are uh, head is in the sand, right? Um, this is a conversation that's happening. I think it's really important that fundraisers, especially, are having the same mm-hmm. conversation. Um, my experience in speaking with a couple in a couple fundraising spaces is that there's almost a resistance to changing this. And I understand on one hand because fundraisers have worked so hard to understand this game. Yeah. And some have figured out this game yeah. and have how to manipulate yeah. to, to win and to get the money. And so now we're talking about changing the game, yeah. right? So yeah. I totally understand that. Um, but we all have to ask ourselves, like, why are we really doing this work? Why do we really want to see change in communities? <laughs> Why are we getting up every day? It's not about uh, getting that money, right? Mm -hmm. It's really about seeing change in communities. And the way that we are currently structured to move capital through the nonprofit sector uh, to support this work is just really problematic. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of power that, um, that fundraisers hold and the nonprofit sector holds. We have to fund somebody, right? We in the U.S. we have a, a mandate five percent that has to leave the doors, right? Mm-hmm. And so, how can uh, folks organize on the receiving side to really push back on the ideas of scarcity and competition, um, and um, you know, also compromising values and convictions around this work in order to get money? And so, as people are becoming more brave to push back on philanthropy from that side, I think it's going to help. Although I don't think, um, you know, again, I'm. I'm not going to put that uh, that burden on the sector, um, but know that that work is happening inside mm-hmm. the walls of these institutions. There's a lot of disruption, a lot of yeah. honest, painful conversations happening, and so um, if folks can self uh, organize to have that within within uh, philanthropy and think, I'm sorry, within fundraising. Um, and to think about how can we change our way of being and existing and thinking about this work, it's yeah. going to really help push us all 
to a collective emergent strategy for change. It's, it's very cool that this, it, this is a conversation absolutely happening in philanthropy and everyone needs to be aware and kind of form that circle together. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So one final question for you. Sure. Is there, you know, from, from this book, from, from your philosophy for listeners, what is the one key thing that you want them to walk away from this conversation remembering? You know, I think that folks, all of us have work to do mm-hmm. uh, at the personal level, at the institutional level, um, as it pertains to money. I think we have to completely shift our emotional attachment to money as it currently stands. Um, we have to hold up a mirror and explore um, very deeply what our personal connection and our history is yeah. around money yeah. and, 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 and change that. And, uh, and I think that that process is going to look different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the steps in the book kind of help, I think, to guide people along our journey. But the way that plays out, I think, is going to just be very based on your individual backgrounds and experience. And so um, think for yourself. Like every day, someone said this to me yesterday. It was a beautiful illustration. Every day we wake up. And it's like, there's a pill that the world wants us to take, right? This pill is a, a dominant way of thinking uh, from, from what we lift up as beautiful, for who we lift up as experts, for um, you know what, what, uh, what ways of thinking we award and uh, prioritize. And so every day I'm asking folks, this pill is going to be in your hand and sometimes in your mouth. Spit it out. Like refuse to just subscribe to this mainstream dominant way of thinking about this work. And open your heart and your minds and your ears to to think differently um, and to reach outside of your network to folks who are, may not look like you to learn from. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a, you know, it's a beautiful way of existing as a human being, yeah. um, but it's also just super inspirational and refreshing to the work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of this, yeah. uh, for being on the show today. This has been a great conversation. It's definitely given me a lot to think about. And for listeners, again, this is Decolonizing Wealth, Edgar Villanueva. But it's an amazing book, so please do go out and read it. It's uh, it's a game changer. Thank you so much, Edgar. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Edgar for his generous time and advice. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure to buy and read Decolonizing Wealth. Everybody is, and it's a hugely important and exciting conversation to be a part of. I'm sure your book will be one giant yellow highlight as well. Um, and if you want to reach out to us for any questions or comments, please, please always feel free to do that. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors, or you can come find us in London and we will treat you to a coffee. Thanks again for listening. See you soon.